Welcome to Finance Feeds Podcasts. Finance Feeds is the world's premier interactive Forex industry news source, providing the latest insights and current affairs from within the online trading industry worldwide. Enjoy our latest podcast episode. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of Finance Feeds Podcasts. My name is Nikolai Isaev. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Finance Feeds. Joining me today is Matt Castle, who is Chief Operating Officer at Edgewater Markets. Matt, thanks for joining us. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Matt, it's the tail end of summer. It's mid-August. Wanted to find out how your summer's been going. Have you been able to do anything fun and exciting? Uh, summer's been great. I mean, you know, I think that uh, July was a bit rainy here. It felt like we were in England a little bit, but it's coming around here in, in August. And, um, you know, summers are always great. You know, it's been uh, it's been a good time. But I'm hoping you also got a lot of business done as well. Yeah, you know, the markets haven't really, has, haven't calmed down. Uh, it, it's always, uh, it's been a busier summer than than in years past. And, and, and that helps pass the time. So it's been great. And, and there's always new and uh, unique topics to talk about. And I'm sure we'll hit on those today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wanted to jump right in and congratulate you actually on acquiring an FCA license on your way to building out your operations in the UK. Thank you. That's great. It's been a long, long time coming. We've been working on it for over a year now. And uh, now we're over the line in early July. And, and now we're putting our plans to work and we're real excited about it. Can you tell our listeners about your plans for Edgewater Markets Limited going forward, including the new CEO you've just brought on board? Sure. Emmanuel's uh, been with Edgewater for, for several years. He's just been appointed the uh, um, chief executive of the SCA business in London. And, you know, the plans are simple. You know, Edgewater's always viewed our, our business as, as being able to deliver three pillars to our clients. And the first pillar is technology. And having built all of our technology from the ground up, we were able to deliver our clients with custom-made uh, solutions that suit their franchise needs. And, and that's been a great success for the last couple of years. The second pillar is bringing them liquidity. You know, liquidity into the markets is as important as any component of, of participating. And, you know, Edgewater's core business has always been in managing our clients' liquidity for them. And that's been a, a long and trusted responsibility of Edgewater in our relationship with our clients. And then the third was being able to establish credit. You know, the, the credit component of it has become uh, more and more difficult ever since the SNB problem uh, in 2015. And, and I, I think overall, clients are, are, are very encouraged by the various credit relationships that they're capable of creating that they previously were, were unaware of. And, and the FCA and the license, and they've been able to withhold cl hold client funds and and to allow them to interact with Edgewater bilaterally is just a natural stepping stone in completing those three pillars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, in terms of regulatory permissions, like I'm always mindful of Brexit, right, which happened a few years ago. Could you tell us if there was any specific reason to set up in the UK rather than, let's say, the European Union? Uh, well, the UK, the FCA, FCA is kind of the Cadillac of regulatory licenses for this business. Edgewater, uh, Edgewater Markets in New York is regulated by the NFA for institutional offering only. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the FCA in the UK, like I said, is it's the most stringent and, and most internationally recognized, you know, retail regulatory body. And we felt it was only logical to begin there. And, mm -hmm. and, and over time, if need be, we will expand that. That, that coverage to uh, the European Union. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Um, listen, I also wanted to say kudos on launching EdgeFX and credit intermediation services for Gulf cooperation countries. Can you tell tell our listeners more details about this offering? Like which currencies will market participants be able to trade? 
And is this sort of the culmination of your work with onboarding local liquidity providers in the region? Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is a real exciting product that we were, we're unrolling right now. The, the currency pairs in question are going to be the Saudi Rial, the Qatari Rial, the Bahrain Dinar, the Kuwaiti uh, Kuwaiti Dinar, and the Emirati Dirham, as well as the Egyptian currency. But you know, the novelty of rolling these currencies out to the marketplace really lies within the two of the pillars that we talked about which is credit intermediation and technology. We, we've done this in, um, in Latin America for the past several years. It's been a great success. And, and some of our biggest clients in, the, in that space are uh, you know, real money asset managers that have real need for, for a real inventory. And connecting you know, a real money asset manager with a real local onshore with firm inventory liquidity in that local currency is, is a new thing. And you know, Edgewater pioneered it in Latin America. And you know we, we brought over our technology to the Middle East to a centralized state bank within each country mm-hmm. who are going to be showing their firm extremely competitive rates in in these pairs and, and and that technology that we've given them to be able to do this is is, is open their eyes to how they can interact with the market. So we're excited for it. I know that that our partners in the Middle East are really excited for it, and the clients that we've discussed this with so far are are, are super excited to to be able to have that that liquidity outlet. Mm-hmm. Great, um, Matt. I wanted to sort of jump ship here and and ask a question that was a little bit uh, later on on our agenda, but I think this ties into the things that you're going to be doing in the Middle East or Gulf cooperation countries. My question was: There's some talk in the mainstream and alternative media uh, regarding de-dollarization happening in the global economy, but you know one of my my previous guest suggested that we shouldn't be worried about or look forward to de-dollarization on a massive scale due to several factors. And one of the things he brought up was there's simply no alternative reserve currency out there for the foreseeable future. And any talk about, let's say, some sort of BRICS currency coming about, peg to gold, it's just not necessarily a viable option. One of the other things he brought up was the fact that there's lots of talk of countries and uh, corporations trading in alternative currencies, right? Perhaps uh, Indian rupees and things like that. Obviously, you guys have a lot of experience working with these different regions and, and different regional currencies. We just spoke about the fact that you will be launching new services specifically to the Middle East. And is there a market for all of these regional currencies today? In other words, is there enough liquidity to go around to be able to, to transact in these currencies against the US dollar? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of questions embedded in that question. And the first I'll talk about first is uh, all, the, all the discussion about de-dollarization. De-dollarization can be categorized in two different ways. You can talk about de-dollarization as a, a country, a central bank, a region of the world, not wanting to hold US dollars as their quote unquote reserve currency. And that's kind of gets all the attention in the world, whether it be conversations with Russia or China or India or Brazil. That kind of ecosystem is is trying to be less reliant on the U.S. dollar. But I, I was recently doing a, a dollar rupee internationalization seminar online. And, and you know, I, I think people have this kind of wrong in some ways. Well, that may be uh, Russia's uh, view and it may be China's view, but some of the other countries in the world, whether it be Brazil or India or, you know, just a general uh, global view is they're looking to be able to have bilateral trade with their partners within their local currency. And, you know, you, you, you saw that when um, Russia invaded the Ukraine, they were cut out of the Swiss system, that they were looking to settle their oil transactions in rubles. And you've seen India wanting to settle some of their transactions in rupee. 
and use and, and the same is in for Brazil and the same for, for, for many other countries. So I think de-dollarization on a, on a sovereign level is, is one conversation and de-dollarization to settle bilateral trade is, is, is actually a real thing. And I think that's that's going to start happening. And it's already started to happen on a, on, on a smaller scale. It's just about the mechanism by which each one of these nations or businesses accumulate the foreign currency needed. And, and that's kind of what the technology that we've done this, this we, we've delivered in Chile and Peru and Colombia and Brazil, where these, these banks and, uh, and sovereign state banks can, can end up becoming market makers and they can choose to accumulate dollars or to divest in dollars based on their price and market activity. So technology is an incredibly powerful tool to mm -hmm. achieve what you want it to do and, and to scale. The, the scale of de-dollarization for bilateral trade will continue to pick up steam as, as all these non-deliverable forward countries, you know, access technology to, to help them achieve that. It sounds like you guys knew that this was coming. And so you've built a, you've built your solutions around this because it seems like Edgewater Markets is perfectly poised to basically deliver the technology and the trading services, whether that be liquidity and connecting to, to banks and, and other market participants. Well, it's partly true. It just didn't have the same, you know, connotation to it. But you know, one of the initial clients that we had in Latin America, they had several bond issuances, you know, over the course of a year, and they wanted to either accumulate euros or dollars or yen or or their local currency for whatever where, wherever that issuance was going to get done. And you know, instead of going out to the market to accumulate those foreign currencies, they were able to utilize the technology we provided them to accumulate them over uh, you know, three week, one week, three month period of time, just by showing uh, rates in the market and, and they're all one month out. So they have the forward that they need to, to be exposed to, but that ended up being a, an additional asset to them as well. So yes, de-dollarization or being able to accumulate foreign currency, it, it was something that we intentionally built, but this is just another application of that. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Matt, in one of your recent conversations with Jill Malandrino on NASDAQ Trade Talks, you said that the biggest story of the year so far for FX has been the normalization of volatility. Um, I wanted to ask you, are you still seeing a strong impact from, let's say, Fed policy, the ongoing war in Ukraine and other factors in this regard? Or have things calmed down somewhat from previous months with some of these economic policy and geopolitical factors perhaps already priced in by market participants? Yeah, I think you're you're referring to the normalization of volatility and, and the 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 traditional historical volatility, whether it be in the FX market or the fixed income market or even the equity market, um, has varied significantly in the last ten or fifteen years. And I I think that when you you went from the post banking crisis and financial crisis of you know two thousand eight nine and all the way through to the COVID era, you know you you really saw volatility at its lowest historical point. And it was all pretty much, you know, manipulated by the central banks in terms of printing the money and, and distributing and, and, and all the things that went on with COVID. But we, we were, we're kind of unwinding all of that now, whether it be through global uh, central bank interest rate hikes, the Federal Reserve removing liquidity from the market. It's happening right now. And when, when that does happen, you know, you have kind of three different areas that are adding to uh, the return of the you know normalization of, of volatility and that is the fixed income market is back and you have interest rate differentials and you have uncertainty as to what the interest rate is going to be in three months or six months or two years and and that brings an enormous amount of volume back into the market 
and volume can create pockets of volatility within the foreign exchange space. But the two-way nature of that, you're you're looking at two-year, five-year, and 10-year interest rates, yields moving significantly on a day-to-day basis. And that, that, that increase in volatility sees things like the VIX, which measures the, you know, kind of equity volatility um, move up from, you know, 10, 11, 12 up to, you know, where it is now at 15, 16 and, and 17. And I think that the historical VIX and the historical volatility hasn't fully normalized yet, but we're getting there. And you can see that in changes in daily um, yields and the fixed income market and the uh, the rates in foreign exchange. Mm-hmm. And what is Edgewater seeing from its clients that would best describe what you discussed at NASDAQ and just now, you know, on the normalization? Of Absolutely. The kind of. So our, our fixed income clients have been extremely busy, um, you know, whereas in years past, they may have had, you know, 100 or 200 million to, to put to the market. Now that, that that's going up to a billion or two billion. So their participation in the market has, you know, tenfolded in, in a real material way. Our, our, our corporate clients have been extremely active hedging their, their, their international exposure and their books. You know, I think that just in, in our conversations with, with a few of those clients, you know, they've learned a, a real valuable lesson in the last, call it eight or nine years, um, whether it be the SNB crisis with the Swiss franc, the, the, the impact that Trump's election had on, on the Mexico economy and their, and their currency. Obviously, COVID was a was a massive shock, and then even the Ukraine crisis and the and the and the rapid rise in interest rates. They found themselves to be historically underhedged, and they they picked up their their hedging cycles more more in tune to what it was like in the I don't know mid to late 1990s and early 2000s. So that era of of, of making sure that your your corporation is hedged is has, has really returned in in a meaningful way. And when you return that corporate volume and that fixed income volume, you know, it, it has a real meaningful impact on, on overall volumes in the market, both in what the market can withstand at times and, you know, what, what it looks like when the market gets overwhelmed with those volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, you just mentioned, obviously, uh, Fed the Fed rates and things like that. I think on your last conversation with Jill on NASDAQ Trade Talks, you had said that the Jackson Hole Wyoming meeting that's coming up is, is sort of crucial to kind of get a gauge on what's going to happen next. And after you had that conversation with Jill, I saw the latest CPI numbers come out and I kind of took a look at them and I said, I want to ask Matt, should we still focus on Jackson Hole to, to, to look at the language that's going to come out of Jackson Hole and figure out, is there going to be one more rate hike? Because my understanding is the projection is there may be one more rate hike before the end of the year, and we're not so sure what's going to happen in 2024. Um, well, I, I think you can talk about um, both of those topics in, in, in a slightly different way. The, the Fed symposium is really, really interesting in Jackson Hole. You know, the Fed has, even since the likes of Alan Greenspan, has tried to be uh, as transparent with the market as they can be. And, and I think that in the last, call it four or five years, the Fed has, uh, the Federal Reserve and the chairman have been taking advantage of the symposium in Jackson Hole as a real opportunity to Flag to the market where their where their where their thinking is not just on a on a week by week basis or month by month basis or meeting by meeting basis, but you know what their end goal is, what they're trying to achieve, and and how they plan to go about achieving that. You know they've introduced quantitative easing at the Fed symposium. They've introduced the rate hikes uh, of of 2022. Uh, you know shortly after they started at the Fed symposium, they've been very transparent every year for several several years, and I have no 
expectation that they're going to deviate from that. So what the Fed says during that, that, that Jackson Hole meeting is going to be critically important for the market to listen to. They've never deviated from what they've, what they've outlined, and I have no reason to believe that they will. So that, that begs the, the, the question of, well, what do you think that they're going to flag? And I think the Fed last year was very transparent. They said that uh, we're going to continue to raise interest rates in order to bring our long-term inflation target to 2%. Are we at 2% yet? No, we're not. I think that the mission and, and, and the message from that was this, this is going to be a little bit painful for, for people and uh, for individuals, for corporations, for governments who are going to need to refinance debt at a, at a significantly higher rate. The pain that he talked about and the way that he relayed that message could not have been more clear. And, and that's what we're kind of seeing unfold now, whether it be a debt problem in Argentina um, it could be a, a debt problem within um, a household, it could be hiring, hiring restraints in, in corporations. It's just starting to come through now. And when, when someone talks about pain, it's usually sustained pain. And I think that the Fed and their, and their mandate, their dual mandate to keep uh, employment high and unemployment low and, and, and price stability, I, I don't see the Fed taking their foot off the gas until we, we really do get to 2%. And it's really easy to get up from one and a half or 2% than it is to get from three, 4% down to 2%. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna be hiking at every meeting. I don't think that they are. They've already shown their willingness to, to hold. You know, they, they, they mentioned that there were going to be two pieces of data from the employment side and the inflation data side before their next meeting in September. We've already seen one of them. Employment is strong. It keeps surprising to the upside in a meaningful way. And, and although CPI was slightly less than expected, it's still elevated. And if you look at today's uh, retail sales numbers, you see that the underlying strength of the U.S. economy remains firm on the back of the U.S. consumer. So uh, I, I think we listen very closely to what the Fed says in in August, and I'm anticipating an additional rate hike in September. You know, I think I agree with you that pain, we haven't reached that uh, at all yet. It seems like the economy continues to be robust and uh, all the levers that they have tried so far are not causing any pain, the, the pain that you're describing. But it seems like it's slowly starting to creep in and we just have to wait and see well, what happens towards the end of the year and then and next year in 2024. Agreed. And I think it's also important to note that we have a, we're, we're, we're entering the election cycle here in the U.S., Oh yeah, uh, you know, and uh, and I think that the the Fed is very interested in getting inflation down to two percent before any election days. Mm -hmm. So Matt, in in February of this year, during our previous conversation that you and I had, we discussed FX deregulation in Brazil and also the expansion of FX NDFs in Asia. I also saw that recently you've mentioned Edgewater's move into fixed income with a partner in Mexico amongst other things. So I know that you are constantly on the pulse of what's going on in regional FX markets. Can you give our listeners a rundown of the key developments that market participants should pay attention to in the second half of the year, specifically Latin America and Asian regions, and maybe further into 2024? Sure. I think Latin America and, and Asia uh, have very different uh, challenges in front of them. You know, uh, with every challenge is an opportunity. And the challenge and, and opportunity that, that exists in Latin America exists solely and entirely with how they are, are going to be managing their debt. Debt in the United States is obviously extremely high, but the capital markets infrastructure, the uh, U.S. Treasury notes, the ability to lend makes that problem not as large of a problem as it might be for an Argentina or, or a Peru or, 
or, or even a Brazil, you know, their interest rates up towards, you know, 10, 15%, you know, that's a significantly material impact on their ability to fund future debt issuances. Recently, Argentina, as early as January, December and January, um, the two presidents were talking about possibly uh, having a common currency between them so that they can conduct bilateral trade. Well, then just uh, a week or two ago, the very popular and, and likely presidential candidate for Argentina said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We want to peg our currency to the dollar. And, and so they really don't know what they want to do, but they know that they're going to have to change something materially in order to be able to finance that debt. Uh, the the, the uh, IMF gave them, I think it was a $44 billion loan for 30 months. And, and so that's basically the, the clock is ticking now. And, you know, that comes out in sometime in March of 2025. And, you know, March of 2025, when you think about debt and, that, and those size, those sums of money is not that far away. So they're going to have to solve for, for that problem sometime in the mid to late 2024, which um, is just a couple quarters away. So uh, I think that the debt and how Latin American countries handle refinancing and re-upping their, their debt levels and, and, and not having it be at an interest rate that is incapable of them ever paying back or even making their coupon payments is, is one challenge. Asia is an entirely different beast, you, you know, whether it be India or Korea or Taiwan or even Indonesia and, and, and Malaysia and, uh, and the Philippines. Their economies are, are pretty robust. They're, their currency markets have been a bit more seasoned and battle tested. And I think that introducing the onshore and the offshore as one entity, which has happened in India recently and will be happening in, in Korea in January of 2024, and it's on the on the table in, in, in the government's offices in Taiwan, is going to is going to be a, a massive boon of capital into those countries. And that's going to solve a lot of their foreign currency problems, whether they want to de-dollarize for bilateral trade or if they want to quote unquote bet on their country and warehouse local currency while everyone's buying dollars. That's a business decision for, for each one of those countries to make and, and how they go about doing it, but they're on their way and, and their strong growth and, and their historical trends were, are supporting that. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, Matt, you spoke a lot about Latin America just now. I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you this. I have a lot of experience working with retail effects and a lot of my colleagues in the retail effects sector tell me that Latin America is very difficult to work with because regionally, not even regionally, each country has its own peculiarities, cultural differences, and things like that. Because you are uh, an astute professional in on the institutional side of things, I wanted to ask, in your experience working with Latin American clients, is it sort of the same? Do they all have certain differences, cultural or, or sort of the way that they conduct business that you guys have to uh, account for when, when, you're, when you're dealing with prospective or real clients in the region? Absolutely. I mean, e each country in Latin America, and you can include Central America in that conversation as well, are, are, are so different. And, and the mechanisms of trade are, are so different. Just to give an example, Mexico has a, a free-floating currency. Brazil, the vast majority of trades go through, at least from the offshore, through the BMF or the, uh, the one-month forward date. And, 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 and Chile, for example, which, uh, which has a, a large trading relationship with countries inside South America and outside, you know, operate within the one-month time frame. And they are looking to free float in 2024 as well. They have all their plans for it. They just have to enact it. And uh, that I, I really do see that coming to fruition in 2024. They've been talking about it for two years and they're ready to go. So, you know, with just in those three economies, you you see a vast difference in, in the way that money flows in and out of um, out of their country. And uh, Brazil is obviously a huge landmass and 
Um, you know, their, their, their GDP is quite high and Mexico is always, you know, the biggest trading partner for the U.S. or Canada or, you know, they're, they're, there's, there's so many differences in there. And, you know, I don't think that, that, that any one of them are really going to combine forces in any way, shape or form. I think the world and is just going to have to deal with all their different intricacies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I venture to guess that edge effects in all of your technologies and, 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 and systems are built to handle all of these specific uh differences and things like that in terms of the transactions themselves, the regulatory requirements and everything else, right? Yeah, absolutely. EdgeFX is built uh, in a modular way. You know, each, each, each instance of EdgeFX custom that we deliver to our clients that have very specific needs for how they interact with the technology, uh, you know, the, the, the module that we add into there is that custom feature. And, you know, it, it may only represent 25 or 35% of the, of the overall tech piece. But that 25 or 35 percent is the difference. It's what matters. It's what make the tech work within their workflows, within their um, payment processes, within their their the risk management and banking infrastructure, and and certainly within their central bank environment. Which is a, an interesting point to to point out because as we combine the offshore and the onshore into one one environment, we we inevitably find ourselves in front of um, you know central bankers and and regulators and you know the the technology that we can provide to them, in addition to the the, the banking clients within the country, is is all about um, you know oversight and, and and regulatory control and you know having control over the offshore. Of course, you have full control of the onshore, but if 55% of the country's business is taking place on the offshore, um, this will give you control and oversight of that as well. And that has mm-hmm. been very, very well received. And when you get the, the central banks saying, yes, this is, this is something we want to embrace, it allows uh, clients that may not be as tech savvy in the region to, um, you know, to say, hey, we want to sit down and see what you have, how it can help us. And, and that's really where we excel in making it you know, really custom design for each individual client. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, there's a lot of things happening with settlements, right? In terms of T plus one plus zero, lots of talk about it, but there's also things coming down the pipe, right? Uh, I believe next year in 2025 as well. Is that, a, is that something that you can speak about and kind of like how is uh, Edgewater preparing its customers that are trading in, 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 in the specific asset classes that will be impacted by this sooner or later? And, and how are, how are clients, you know, preparing for these changes? Because it seems to me like these are going to be monumental shifts. Sure. I mean, I, I think that the buzz around, you know, T plus one is, has been around for a couple of years. And, you know, I think it's important for people to understand why that's being discussed. And T plus one is, it would allow for the relaxing of the consumption of credit and, 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 and credit being, you know, one of the, one of the main pillars of anyone's participation in the market, having your credit being consumed for a shorter period of time is naturally attractive to a lot of people who give out that credit. You know, there's a, a double-edged sword in everything, of course, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the banks, a lot of the prime brokers that that give out credit to their clients, they do it for a fee, of course. And if the consumption of that credit is for a shorter period of time, well, then the fee might go down as well. So there's 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 people that are there are a lot of people in the camp in favor of a T plus one settlement. Uh, there's many people that are against the settlement of T plus one, and you know they have different um, personal reasons for for why that's the case. I don't really see it happening anytime soon. You know the, there's all sorts of different clearing mechanisms that are out there that help alleviate credit concerns, and if you want to achieve that, there's there's a way to there's a way to do that by clearing on an exchange, which of course costs more money, but the 
availability of credit becomes easier. You know, and and having each country and foreign exchange is such a OTC product that getting every country to agree on a, on a, on a place and a time to have a meeting, let alone to uniform to a T plus one settlement, is uh, is going to be a, a heck of a challenge. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely agreed. I wanted to move on and say, you know, according to CNN and other media, the world is currently experiencing significant challenges with things like crop yields and food supply. At the same time, academics are warning that we should be anticipating some drastic supply shocks. This is according to an interview in uh, in Axios. When I read this, to me, this means price volatility that's going to be happening. And, you know, while you and I are not experts or knowledgeable about the global food supply chain, I wanted to ask if you and Edgewater are already seeing upward price pressure in key commodities that are traded on your platforms. And how are you prepared to meet the needs of market participants should these warnings become actual reality? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. As you said, I'm, I'm by no means a uh, an expert or even knowledgeable about the global food supply chain. But, you know, if you if you if you take a, a, you know, a higher level look at it and you just kind of refer to it as commodities, you know, I think it's it's, it's an easier discussion. You know, many of our clients are trading precious metals, whether it be gold, silver, platinum, palladium, uh, and we'll be introducing additional um, additional um, metals in, in 2024, like rare earth metals, which we feel is a huge opportunity. But, you know, within the within the precious metal space, you know, you've already seen, you know, a, a real large appreciation in and gold, for example, into the into the COVID period, uh, you know, gold went up to you know 1,900, 2,000. When the Fed started hiking rates, the cost of holding gold becomes quite expensive when you uh, when you consider uh, the return that you would get on investing in a, in a Treasury yield two-year, five-year, ten-year, whatever period when you're at four or five percent. You know, so you you saw the commodities and all those precious metals sell off pretty aggressively as the as the hiking became quite serious. But it's now recovered, you know, 90% of that that price loss. You know, I think that commodities in general, um, we all read about the price of wood at one point, the price of um, of, of eggs, you know, all, all of these commodities, all these foods and and, and commodity products are are really a function of how much it costs to produce. And when you're talking about food, how much does it cost to produce food? Uh, you have to pay salaries. You have to, you have to have the land. Salaries have been going up. Um, real estate has been going up. So the 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 price pressures on 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 food staples have been have been very difficult and challenging. And I think that's one of the messages that um, Chairman Powell was relaying when he was talking about pain that prices need to go up in order to restrict consumption. So food is for the for the global food and supply chain. Um, whether it be a chip for your car or eggs for your breakfast, um, whether it be gold and silver for all the various real reasons outside of speculative that those products are used for, and there's many. Yeah, I think the prices are going to continue to go up. And you know, my 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 forecast for precious metals, for example, is as soon as the Fed signals that it stopped easing rates or, or hiking rates, rather, that you're going to see a real explosion in precious metals and and additional commodities, and that will stick around for 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 quite a while. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. I also remember this is, I think, after the Ukraine war started and there were sanctions imposed on Russia. I remember something happening with one of the metals exchanges in London, it having to shut down because of insane price volatility. I don't remember where that, whether that was the copper market or, or something else, but definitely price shocks all over the place in terms of geopolitical events and interest rates and everything else going on in the world. Yeah, well, you know, again, that I think we can revert back to the normalization of volatility. 
in some way. And, you know, there, there's no there's no better way to normalize the markets than to give them a shock. And and, and whether it be in, you know, the equity market, uh, the foreign exchange market or the precious metals market, shocks happen. And when they do, they're violent and they're, they're disruptive. And then people adjust after that. So the precious metals market is, has become a bit more stable since then. And I think some of the policies and changes and regulatory requirements, whether it be on an exchange or or even the margin given to retail customers has been modified to uh, take those kind of bursts into, into, into consideration. Mm-hmm. Agreed. As a tradition, uh, I ask all of my guests at the end some questions that are personal in nature. So I, I wanted to say that, you know, you and I both attended Trade Tech FX earlier this year, and it just so happened that we sat in the same room on the plane going back home to the tri-state area. So I wanted to ask you, what does Matt prefer? Does Matt prefer a window or an aisle seat on a plane? And or, well, is it a, or is it a more complicated question than just window? Well, it's a great question because everybody's got a preference, right? Um, sure. I'm a window guy myself. I, um, I like to sleep on the plane. I can knock myself out at will. And, and it's always nice to look out the window and looking out at the sky when you're flying is thought provoking. And I like to uh, like to be silent and have a look out the window and and, and think back on where I'm, where I've been and where I'm going. Great. Awesome. Um, well, hopefully I'll see you. <laughs> I'll see you on another plane soon going to some, uh, some industry event here in the States or, or elsewhere. Absolutely. Um, Matt, I wanted, I wanted to thank you for, for joining us today, giving your insights on many of these different, uh, many of these different topics. I wanted to wish you the best of luck with Edgewater Markets Limited in the UK and your expansion in the Middle East with the GCC currencies. And hopefully we'll see each other soon. That's great. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me and um, have a great remainder of uh, summer 2023. And uh, I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to our latest Finance Feeds podcast episode. For sponsorship opportunities or to become a guest, please email us at info at financefeeds.com.